Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors and brought to you by the generous support of the Tennessee Valley Authority. To learn more about TVA's impact on our community, follow TVA on Instagram at TVA and on Twitter X at TVA News. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Dr. Trené Jordan, Sr. Dr. Jordan is the lead pastor at Mount Canaan Baptist Church. He is actively involved in all aspects of the Chattanooga community. Before returning to Chattanooga in 2004, he was busy leading Greater Progressive Baptist Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and devoting himself to that community. He is the founder of Stop the Madness National, whose mission is to reduce the madness by offering hope to youth and to families in an at-risk culture. Dr. Jordan, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we delve into the organizations and initiatives you've been involved with over the last 40 years, let me ask, what is in your morning cup? Well, Mike, thanks for allowing me to be here this morning, and I've got a cup full of gratitude this morning. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah, i got a cup full of gratitude. I'm very grateful for my life in this season and the opportunity to share with you this morning. Well, we have a lot of gratitude you're here, and it's interesting you bring that up. Last couple of years, I've been reading, a, a it's not a devotional, but a book called The Daily Stoic, and it's big on gratitude. And the more you practice gratitude, the better you feel, and it really does make a difference. It definitely makes a difference. It changes your focus and keep it on what is important. Very true. Now, we were talking a little bit in my office, and I I know a bit of your background, but we got the conversation going and and, uh, would like to revisit that a little bit. Sure. You you grew up in Chattanooga. You went to the University of Tennessee. But one of of the things you mentioned to me, you had a calling to be uh, a minister. I've never had a calling. And so what I'd like to ask you is what that is and and how that feels. And and you talked a little bit about being the oldest and and the responsibilities there. So can you revisit that a little? I'd be glad to. As a matter of fact, I want to disagree with you. Uh, You do have a calling. And your calling is this podcast, which is making a difference in so many people's lives. And I think the calling really is about purpose. Uh, in my situation, it was a little bit different. My father was a pastor, so I grew up in the church. Uh, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior at six years old. Oh, wow. Before I was born, my parents were married for five years, and um, they had prayed for a child, and uh, they couldn't have one. Yeah. And after five years, they found out I was coming, and my dad had already promised God that if he gave him a son, he was going to give him back to him. Well, so I put no pressure on you. my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. You're right. That was a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but it is also something that has come easy for me. Mm-hmm. I think once you find your purpose, it's going. You're going to have challenges and ups and downs. But there's that internal drive that, in my case, I felt like it was supernatural, mm-hmm. uh, and I do not regret any of it. Now, you had that calling. Yes. You go to the University of Tennessee, and it's not that you're running away from the calling, but you're trying to, I guess you're trying to find, am I meant to do something else? Because you were, you're a business marketing major, but you, in the back of your mind, you had this. Now, 
there was no question in my mind what I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. I just told the Lord that I was smarter <laughs> than that. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? <laughs> it has not worked out at all. So uh, it's it's interesting you would put it that way. I tried everything. Yeah. Uh, I knew that there was a calling on my life for ministry, mm-hmm. but I wanted to fulfill uh, that purpose by doing things my way or another way. And so instead of preaching, I decided that I could help people through teaching. And so after graduating from the University of Tennessee, came back to my alma mater, Brainerd High School, and taught there for a couple of years. Had some great successes and touched some lives there, but I was miserable. And for there, because I taught marketing and that was what my major was, I felt like that if I moved in that area, so I went to work for Johnson & Johnson Products, became a territory manager with them, was promoted within eight months, doing quite well, mm-hmm. miserable. <laughs> okay. And I've the sold The money insurance. was good, but the fulfillment was Oh, no question. I've been what we would consider successful. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't fulfilled. So all the metrics that everyone puts up, if someone's successful, and, and it, it tends to lean towards money, it tends to lean towards recognition. All those things were happening, but something inside you said, this didn't feel right. This isn't it. Um, it's that inner longing. And yeah. I, I think that that's what uh, is frustrating a lot of people today. Yeah. And they're working jobs or they're doing things because they want to fulfill what the world says is successful or what their neighbors are doing. They're competing and miserable because they haven't found that place and that space that they were created for. And I think satisfying the soul is more important. Well, and if you can, talk a little bit how you found that place. You you get out of the university, you go teach, and and that's fulfilling in some aspects because we talked about some of your former students who I know who are contributing greatly in what they do today, and there's got to be some great satisfaction in that. But talk a little bit about that journey that brought you back to the ministry in terms of your calling. Well, first of all, I was miserable. You know, I wasn't fulfilling that spot. And it's crazy when you're miserable and you know why. (laughs) I mean, nobody else knew really what's going on inside of you or what. And so all those years that it looked like I was successful, there was that missing inner peace. And I knew what it was. Did you have that Sunday evening, oh, man, tomorrow's Monday and I got to go. I mean, it's good job working, but just didn't light your fire. Yeah, uh, I I think describing it as a Monday morning experience is good. I just believe mine was a everyday experience wow. of knowing that I wasn't happy, yeah. that I did not have any peace, and I knew why, that I wasn't um doing what I was purposed and called to do. And so it wasn't until I got tired Mm -hmm. and said, okay, Lord, 
if you give me some peace, <laughs> I'll do what you want me to do. And uh, my life took a turn, and I've been doing it for 40 years now. It's amazing. So talk a little bit in more detail about that process, because you're the territory sales manager at Johnson Johnson, but you also went on to National Life and Omaha Mutual. At what point, and I understand the conversation, but how does that all work out? And you're going to your, your family and saying, guess what? We're doing a 180 here. Well, um, there have been a lot of 180s uh, along the journey. Uh, the initial one that we're talking about where it was me fulfilling my purpose, it wasn't a secret to my wife. My mm -hmm. wife and I dated in high school. And so even though I was running for ministry, I was still speaking for youth groups, speaking in churches and those kinds of things. So, And did you find as you were doing that fulfillment in those that helped balance the secular and the non-secular, for lack of a better description? Yeah. And I think that that's where the tug of war is, Mike, because yeah. it's interesting we would describe it as secular and non-secular, Yeah. when in essence, it's who you are and you've got to accept it. But uh, the world or people around us think it's one or the other, mm -hmm. because whatever your purpose is, it affects your spirituality, your professionalism, what you do and how you interact and work with people. So it was really just kind of finding that center uh, and then operating in it. The interesting thing for me was, is that because I grew up in the church and I knew the spiritual side, nobody could beat me quoting scripture. It was really going to the University of Tennessee, majoring marketing, but also minoring in black religious studies, uh, which allowed me to see the, the role of the church. And I think that that's where people get convoluted because we have a church perspective, a Sunday perspective, and then we have a Monday through Friday perspective. And unfortunately, they don't come together. <laughs> okay. When we were talking about this earlier, you, you said something really interesting about the role of the black church in America yeah. and the class. Yeah. You said, I saw they offered this class, and I thought that would be my crib class. Yeah, yeah. yeah talk about your perception going in and what it had ended up becoming and how that affected you. Yeah. Well, first of all, when I went to the University of Tennessee, a major named Marketing, and we had some electives. You know, you always have the electives, the things that you think you would enjoy. And so when I was looking through um, the book, I saw black religious studies. I go, that's for me. <laughs> it's religion. You know what I mean? Who can beat me quoting scriptures? I don't even have to study for this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. And so I entered the class, but when I entered the class, I realized that it wasn't a theological class. It wasn't a class that teach you how to study the Bible. The class was more about the role of the black church in America. And that was really intriguing. And as I began to dev in and dig, I really found out that my being there wasn't about just the black church per se. Um, but it was really about learning who I was yeah. as a person. Because growing up in the Chattanooga public school system, 
uh, going through desegregation. I was at the forefront of that. I was at Brainerd High School when they were the Brainerd Rebels, uh, where there were race riots every day. I was the first senior class president, which mean I was always able to communicate with black and white right. because of my love for people and compassion. I never had a problem. So I've always been one that could pull people together rather than stand on one side of the fence. So going through that, I found out who Ternay was in America. Yeah, I didn't even find out that I really was a black man. <laughs> I knew we faced some of the segregation. I knew we, we went through uh, uh, the challenges mm -hmm. of racism and that kind of thing. But when I began to talk about the black church in America, I began to realize where my ancestors came from and how we came to America. And I began to understand that the black church was not just the black church. It was the only institution in America where there was freedom for the black man. You didn't own any businesses. You didn't own anything. As a matter of fact, you worked uh, all the time and you did that for whoever owned you. And, I, you know, even now as I'm walking in circles and I walk in all kind of circles and I really uh, take great pride in being able to go across denominational lines and black and white lines, liberal and conservative lines, because I don't think Jesus had either one of those. Right. I think he loved people. And I've always operated in that. And a lot of my white friends ask me, why is there such thing as a black church? The church is not black or white. It's not black or white now. But the reason there is a black church, because you wouldn't let me go to the white church. <laughs> well, what's the old quote? The most segregated time in America is 10 a.m. on a yes. Sunday morning. And isn't it interesting that we always talk about our country being built on biblical principles, <laughs> and yet we have the separation and that some people were only three-fourths a human, and we're built on. And so even now it becomes convoluted when we start talking about justice and that kind of thing. People don't like to talk about it, but there's a group of people that feel like the law is just us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Others can do what they want to do any way they want to do it, how they want to do it, and justice never seems to affect them. And so those are the kinds of open dialogues with people of good hearts who really want to see reality and work together to make a better world, a better country. We got to be able to have those open dialogues. Yeah. One of our earlier podcasts uh, had Wade Hinton on, and Wade said a couple interesting things that uh, one of the reasons he left Chattanooga for first law school in Memphis and, and then Atlanta was he didn't think there was a place for him in Chattanooga sure. because he didn't see others who looked like him. And I would imagine, because uh, you're a little bit older than Wade, and I'm a little bit older than Wade, I would imagine for you being in that first graduating class of a segregated Brainerd yeah. might have had similar if or a more distinct situation like that. It's really interesting. <laughs> uh, just recently, I celebrated my 50th class reunion. Oh, congratulations. Okay. 
I can't believe it went so fast. <laughs> it's just but like yesterday. Wasn't it? It, was, it was really interesting together with my classmates mm-hmm. 50 years later. And for us to talk about the good old days, because the days they remembered <laughs> were not the days <laughs> I remembered. <laughs> and 50 years later, to come back together and to see all of us who were there together in 50 years, the directions our lives had taken, and we come back as settled-minded people who've lived their lives, many who have grandchildren, to come back together and remember 73 and say, those were the good old days. We took some major different paths. And it's interesting you would say about Wade and compare my time to his, yes. If Wade felt that way, then 30 years later, you can only imagine what I experienced as a man and African-American. And unless you understand the history, if you don't know where you've been, you don't understand where you are. And one of the challenges that the Wades and the likes of Wade are are experiencing in Chattanooga is that uh, when I was coming up, it wasn't a whole lot of African-Americans going to UTC. Right. As a matter of fact, when I went to the University of Tennessee, there were only about 2,000 black kids there. And... 1,991 of them were from Memphis. (laughs) And so, I mean, the first African-American football player uh, came in 1971. I got there in 73. So it was a different world back then. Fortunately, a lot of things have changed. But systemically, there are a lot of things that are still the same. We still have a lot and of work to do. People don't like to hear the word systemic because we have a tendency to put a title to things we don't understand or even we want to talk about. Systemic doesn't mean you're racist or I'm racist. Systemic means that there are systems that are in place that have been in place down through the year's history that you and I even see them different. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be able to talk about those things in a real way uh, in order for us to move forward and make a difference. How do we get people to talk about it? You know, I was hoping that our generation would do it. Yeah. (laughs) Praise God. My children walked in a little better space. I'm hopeful for my grandchildren. Children are innocent. (laughs) Children are shaped most of the time with their opinions from their parents and their grandparents. And I'm hoping that as they get older and they pass the baton forward, that things are getting better. Yeah, and that there's a little less um, prejudice in each generation. Um, I want to go back to your being called back to the ministry because that also took you to Fort Wayne. Was the move a result of being called back, or were you? did you have a church in Chattanooga before you went to Fort Wayne? Yeah. Uh, first of all, mind you, I grew up in my father's church. Right. So I tell people all the time, it's interesting, and what was my father's church is now the church that I pastor. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's, that's got to be uh, you know, something that really just sits well with you, makes you feel good. It is, it is an amazing feeling, yeah. it's, but it hasn't been without its ups and downs, mm-hmm. even for me. 
a lot of the people that are still around now were my Sunday school teachers. They're the people who raised me. Um, they were my father's generation. I've been, I came back to take care of them. Uh, I pastored a church here in, on what we now call North Shore. We just called it North Chattanooga <laughs> when I was uh, coming up. So I pastored a church um, in the Hillside community for five years and then received a call from the church in Fort Wayne in 1989. And I left Chattanooga to go above the Mason-Dixon line, which in itself was a major uh, shift uh, for my family and I. But a lot of things happened in Fort Wayne. When you say a major shift going above the Mason-Dixon line, was it a cultural shift or an attitude shift? Or Yeah, I think um, when you make a shift for an environment, all of those things that you mentioned mm-hmm. are involved or connected. Uh, it was a different culture. But again, you got to know the history. Yeah, uh, The people, particularly African-Americans who were in the, quote, all-American city, Fort Wayne in 1989, were people who fled the South going north in the 50s and the 60s mm-hmm. for better opportunities and that kind of thing. So the great migration. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, and even though they were doing better financially living the quote American dream, there were still those same systemic issues Mm -hmm. uh, just in a different way. So it was a cultural shift in every way. I mean, leaving Chattanooga and living in the cold and the snow. <laughs> if I never see another snowflake in my life, I will be okay. <laughs> and, and, and Fort Wayne at that time was a pretty heavy manufacturing town, if I'm not mistaken. And that's where a lot of that great migration came from. That's correct. Yeah. But you were equally as busy and productive in Fort Wayne, not just with your church, but with the community. And, and Mike, I think that's where the tension is in my life. When you start talking about my marketing degree and you start talking about black religious studies and understanding the role of the black church, uh, even down through history, you will find that the leaders in the African-American community were usually all preachers. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin Luther King, it was Andrew Young. Uh, there are people that some people don't like to talk about, the Jesse Jacksons, mm-hmm. the Al Sharpton, because usually those were the people who spoke for the voiceless. They were people who didn't have to worry about whether their families were going to eat if they spoke the truth or things. So the African-American church has been the catalyst of everything. And so me understanding the role of the church, that is what gave me my mindset. So I'm not just a pulpit pastor, but I pastor the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is my role to try to make sure that uh, we get along from a denominational or a, quote, spiritual perspective. It is my role to make sure that young people like the Wades and those people, young people who graduate and go away to Nashville and to Atlanta to go 
and find themselves in a different culture and refuse to come back to Chattanooga because the opportunities are better elsewhere. I see that as a role. I've served on every board in this city, not because I want to, many times because there was a vacancy there. There wasn't a voice there. And so um, with my heart and my compassion and loving people, uh, I want to make a difference. And so that was Fort Wayne, and it has been my life back in Chattanooga. Well, and one of the big difference makers for you that you started in Fort Wayne was the Stop the Madness. That is correct. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, one of the most disheartening things uh, when I got to Fort Wayne, it was a northern city, of course, and it was in the middle of the crack epidemic. Not only was it in the middle of the crack epidemic, but those people who were in manufacturing who um, had moved there that were doing well, the manufacturing um, industry hit a snag and a lot of people lost their lives. And so young people to make money, people who were making good paying jobs had to convert to other things to support their families. Now, when we see it on the six o'clock news, it's those no good drug dealers and those kinds of things. Right. But sometimes for some of those people, it was a way of life. And so kids at that time, there was a crack epidemic. Fort Wayne was in the middle of Detroit, Chicago, Indianapolis to the south and Columbus, Ohio. And so all of those larger cities were convening on Fort Wayne and young people were getting caught up in uh, the drug trade. And um, every day, every day um, you turn on the television, there was another young person that had lost their life. Mm. And uh, the, the African-American community was concentrated in one side of the city there. So nine times out of 10, if uh, one lost his life, then it was someone he grew up with that took his life. Um, I've had people in my congregation whose son was killed by the son of another person who was in my congregation. That's got to be hard. And so in 1992, uh, it was happening and nobody was saying anything. You know, I think the president's wife at that time was saying, just say no to drugs. Mm. Well, that's easy to say in your community. <laughs> yeah. But when you're in my community and I'm seeing this devastation that's happening, and then everybody else wasn't saying any. The police really wasn't saying a whole lot as long as it didn't affect them. The community wasn't saying anything because they didn't know what to say. The church was definitely not saying anything. And so I just said, somebody's got to do something. And uh, I'm not the one to sit around. And so we started Stop the Madness which was an uh, answer to the president's wife's statement, uh, just say no to drugs. My answer was, these kids can't just say no. you got to give them something to say yes to. Mm. And so we started Stop the Madness as a uh, program that would help them with conflict resolution, self-esteem, motivation, because if you don't know who you are, then you'll never understand your purpose. And uh, again, it depends on what side of the fence you 
sit on uh, determines what your perception is. And I just know that the community wasn't seeing the perception of these kids and looking at it from their view. And so Stop the Madness, which I'm very proud of, became a national organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we even did some work with the Justice Department. And um, it's been a tremendous journey. But the sad thing through it all, I buried 105 young people. In your time in Fort Wayne? Yes. And my own son became an innocent victim, which is another story that propelled me into the national spotlight because the irony of the guy who is leading the charge against gang violence and drugs, his son innocently sitting at the YMCA, uh, someone goes outside, started shooting and two bullets enter and one in in his head. So uh, you can't write that story. <laughs> and you're, we, we had your daughter, Dewan, on, yeah. and she touched a little bit yeah. on that. And, and you're right. You, you can't write that. Yeah. So um, is Stop the Madness what brought you back to Chattanooga? No, Stop the Madness is not what brought me back to Chattanooga. What brought me back to Chattanooga is my family. Uh, my dad had pastored Mount Canaan for 40 years I talked him into retiring um, at 40 years because I could see the stress and the strain of those 40 years and leading people every day. Uh, And I wanted him to enjoy. Uh, I could see him mentally slipping. And um, he retired in 2002. And Mount Cana looked for a pastor for uh, two years. There was no way in the world. The Lord was blessing me in Fort Wayne. The church that I had went to started at 25. It was 2,500 15 years later. And to come back from 2,500 to less than 200 at that time uh, where my dad was, that didn't make common or any kind of sense. But it was the same draw that pulled me in at 12 years old, that pulled me to Fort Wayne uh, in in 1989. It was the same pull that brought me back to my family and this community to take dad's church so that I could be here for my family and my parents. You knew it was the right decision, but how hard a decision was it? um, Everything that I have shared with you, it is so hard to explain to people because we operate on facts and figures, Mm -hmm. logic. My life has never been about facts, figures, or logic. It has been about what we started this conversation on, that there has been a calling on my life from a higher power. (laughs) I don't know what others' belief is, but I know where my belief is. And it has guided every aspect of my life. And every time I went against it, I was miserable. But every time I was drawn to that call, I still had adversity. I still had ups and downs, but I had an inner peace. You know, I think that's such an important point because when people hear 
you know, I had a call to be drawn to that, or I just turned it over to God, they think that everything's just going to be peaches and cream. Yeah. And the point that you make that there's still adversity, there's still challenges, but there's an inner peace. Man, sometimes I wonder if I'm crazy, okay, because <laughs> trying to explain this to people yeah. and trying to explain it in a way that they want to understand it because they want the facts and figures. We want proof. We want the equation. <laughs> okay. But the truth of the matter is, I think most people's frustration, even those who say, I love God and I have this spiritual calling, I think our frustration is, is because we think it's either or. Yeah. I think and I don't want to start preaching, but that's what I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it drives everything that I do, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's the United Way, the Chamber of Commerce, or in the pulpit of Mount Canaan, is that I don't think a lot of people who even call themselves spiritually understand their connection to God. Because I'm getting ready to get in a lot of trouble here, but I stand on what I say. People believe that God is someone who stands up and looks over us and takes scores on whether we're right or wrong. And so that's why we can easily compartmentalize him in our church buildings in that place. But when we're in the boardroom, is something totally different. God is not outside of us. Jesus lives in us. When he went away, now, again, I'm preaching now, but if you believe that he went away, Jesus died, went away, and said, I'm going to send you a comforter, I'm going to send you something that is now going to dwell in you. And so if you really want to find peace, you got to find that source, which is beyond us humanly, but you got to find it inside of you. So you're not going to find it on a job. You're not going to find it at the picket fence. You're not going to find it on what you drive. I have the opportunity to sit with some of the most successful people in the world, and they are completely miserable. And I've sat with people who have absolutely nothing. But they have that core. We had on our Christmas episode, I don't know if you're familiar with Father Dale Hall. He is the chaplain at the Chat Foundation, and he refers to himself as the chaplain of the streets. And okay. he ministers cool. to the homeless. Yeah. And uh, being a cradle Catholic, I don't know Scripture real well, because the Catholic Church just tells you what it should be. It. Um, but he, he quoted a scripture of, you've got to be able to sit, at, and I don't have it. Uh, memorize, but you got to be able to sit across from someone and look in their eyes and see Jesus. And he was talking yeah. about homeless. Yeah. So I, I get a lot of what you're saying uh, that it's got to be within you. And so, and, and I think you made such an important point of the separation yeah. and in keeping score, but it, it's every day. It's, it's every day. Are. It's who you are. Yeah. I mean, we keep trying to find ourselves, but we keep looking outside ourselves to create an image so we can say, this is who I am. Well put. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but who you are is what comes out of you. It is not what gets on you or in you. It comes out of you. We've uh, got a little bit of time left. I, I want to shift gears a little sure. bit. You're very involved in the Chattanooga community. Yes. How has Chattanooga improved since you were in high school? And 
What are the challenges still ahead? I think the challenge is, as a matter of fact, sitting here, and I've enjoyed this conversation sitting here. I have too. Looking across the table at you in your eyes as you're asking me the question, and we're relating man to man, and I feel hearts connecting. Yeah. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take people to stop figuring out the way they do it, the way they think it, and the way they see it is the way it is. We got to be able to sit across and look people in the eye and see their perspective and hear their perspective, which may be totally different, and understand that because you don't live that way, you don't see it that way, you ain't been raised that way, that what I see and what I feel (laughs) is not my reality. And so anybody who said something with a different experience, have lived a different experience, we just write them off because that doesn't fit the mold. And that's what systemic means. We, we have our narratives. Are you going to live by that narrative? It means there are systems that we've been born with, that we've grown up with, that we've been taught. Doesn't have anything to do with your soul. It has the systems that you've grown up with. Do you think Chattanooga has a as a whole has made progress on that front? Yeah, I think to say we haven't made any progress uh, would be foolish. We have made a lot of progress. <laughs> you know, coming back to Chattanooga, let's remove the race issue. Uh, I came back to Chattanooga. It was a totally different place. When I left here, smog was everywhere. (laughs) When I came back, we had the riverfront. Because you came back in 04, was it? Yeah, I came back in 04. So there have been a lot of changes. But I sat at many tables, and one of the best scenarios uh, that I've heard while sitting there, and I didn't comment on it, but I, I heard it loud and clear. And they were talking about this was during the time we were getting ready to try to look at I think it was called 2.0. Yeah, Chattanooga 2.0. Okay, 2.0. I was the education initiative. But one of the meetings I was in, they said, you know, I can't remember exactly how I put it, but 2.0, because we began with 1.0. And 1.0 was designed to change the Chattanooga narrative. But 2.0 is designed to attack the issues that involve people, education in particular. So Chattanooga has done a great job with 1.0. Okay. I think we're still working on 2.0. Yeah. And I think the only way to not make progress is to stop working at it. How can the average Chattanooga, like myself, be a catalyst for that? It's so easy. First of all, there's no blanket answer. But again, (laughs) I think the only way we can do it is we got to do what we're doing now. You're looking me in the eye. Having a conversation. We're we're, we're from different backgrounds. I don't know anything about your background, but I know it is not the same as mine. (laughs) I know your experience (laughs) is not the same as mine. I'd say we had different experiences. And so, but we're meeting here at this table, respecting each other as men, respecting each other 
our experiences because we are all a collection of our experiences. And not denying my reality as I not deny your reality. Yeah, and I, I think that's such an important thing to remember. We do get caught up in thinking that it's we have our experience and that's the only thing that matters. Um, I do want to ask you one last question. Sure. Before I do get to that last question, I do need to remind listeners that uh, who makes all this possible? It's the Tennessee Valley Authority, and I thank them for sponsoring my morning cup. Follow TVA on social media to learn more about its multifaceted mission of service and visit tva.com forward slash do good here to explore exciting TVA career opportunities. Last question, and you might think about this a second. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? To find your calling earlier and give in to it. I like the end, give in to it, because so many of us, it's back there. And you think you got to make money, you think, and then you do get in that trap of whether they're golden handcuffs or just, I can't take that chance because I can't put my family at risk. Yeah. And Mike, again, that's where the conflict in the inner self comes. Because as I said, we compartmentalize things. Mm -hmm. I, I talked about the kids in the street um, with crack. And it bothered me because those kids were no good and they need to be in the system. The drug now is fentanyl and it's affecting another community, but now it's a sickness. <laughs> They're both drugs, but it's, that part and, and and the answer to crack and fentanyl is putting it in the center of the table and realize that it affects different parts of our community, but with the same devastation and realize that one isn't a criminalized and the, and the other one. And I, I hate to go back to that, but that's probably the most uh, profound to get our attention. And, and unfortunately, we live in a time that we're not going to change when we set in a way unless there's something that shocks us into reality. And unfortunately, that a reality doesn't shock us until it affects us personally. <laughs> so true. And to just to add this on at the end, you just finished writing a book, correct? Yeah, I just finished writing a book called Crossing Jordan. Um, I think everybody has someone they look up to, and we're usually shaped by a mentor and person in their life. My father was my mentor. Yeah. And uh, everything that I am and even the principles, my attitude about life, loving people, it came because I had a loving mother and a loving father who taught me, even in the systems that I grew up in, to name one thing he said to me, I want you to know one thing. You're no better than anybody else, but I want you to know you're as good as anybody else. And that's the important yeah. part. That's the important. And so I've never needed something on the outside of me to tell me who I am. And so because my dad came up in an era where he didn't write books, I knew he always wanted to. So in this Crossing Jordan book, I'm taking all of the leadership principles that he taught me that I'm also now trying to pass on to my next generation. So to a great degree, he's your co-author. He is my man. Where can someone get that book if they want it? 
you can go to my website. My website is located at Dr. Ternay Jordan Sr. That's sr.com. Well, I'll be going there because I, I look forward to reading your book. And thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for the invite. It's, I've really enjoyed this cup of coffee. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.